Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learnt along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today I'm talking to Nick Marks and sometimes I talk to entrepreneurs and sometimes I talk to authors and sometimes to scientists and I suppose Nick fits two of those categories. He is a scientist, he's a statistician. He worked with both the Blair and the Cameron governments to try and find a new way to measure the country's progress. So rather than GDP actually trying to create a happiness index for the for the country. He's now founder and CEO of Friday, a business which in his own words, it drove him demented to see what people were measuring in the hope of finding ways to make their teams happier and more productive. So we talk about what's at the heart of his data model and the things that drive productivity. And he touches on why it's important. In four years of measuring data across his clients, he's been able to establish that the happiest teams are 22% more productive than the unhappiest so we chat about that. Uh, we chat about uh, a little bit about his former life as a statistician for government. And we talk about what his business is trying to do to try and enable entrepreneurs to measure something, happiness, to measure that in their employees, because it's something we all feel. So it's sort of a personalized approach to measuring it one employee at a time and then aggregating it at a company level so that people can then do something with it in real time. Fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Nick as much as I did. Uh, hi, I'm Nick Marks. I'm the founder and CEO of Friday. Yeah, I'm a statistician and I measure slightly peculiarly happiness and particularly happiness at work. Why happiness? Why, why measure happiness? I'm interested in people's experience of life and, and sort of throughout my career, I've got frustrated with the fact that we try and measure people's experience sort of objectively by what they have or what they do rather than how they feel. And so it's been an iteration over sort of a couple of decades of work really that I've actually landed on probably asking people how happy they are is probably the best way of measuring their experience of life. Why do you think that's true? Particularly in work context, because you could ask people loads of different things and so why, why happiness? I think that it certainly has to be an emotional element of the experience. In the sense, as human beings, we are emotional beings as well as cognitive beings and physical beings. And if we start thinking about any experience, then we, we very quickly come to some sort of gut feel about it. Uh, so I don't know if you've ever read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow book, but he talks about system one thinking and system two thinking. And the system two thinking is the more deep thought. and The system one is the more emotional way of coming to it. And 
any situation we find ourselves in, we make a very quick snap emotional judgment. So you meet someone for the first time, I like them, I don't like them. It's roughly right normally. And that's a lot of the way that we assess every sensation experience we have. Is it pleasant, unpleasant? Is it good, bad? And happiness is a pretty good way when we ask a catch-all question to people to get into that strong, good, bad situation. You know, if you're happy at work, it's going well. If you're not, you're not. And it's also very firmly located in the individual as their own experience. Whereas often in workplaces, we ask people their sort of perceptions of something outside of their control. So in many sort of performance reviews, you sort of ask people vaguely about someone's skill in leadership or something. Well, you don't really know, but I do know that I like working with them. I don't like working with them. That is very strongly located in me. So if you're going to get subjective data, I think you should get ones that people are experts on and we're experts of our own emotional experience, our happiness. What's your view of appraisals? Obviously, feedback is good in the organization. And I think, and in fact, I'm with Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink once said that the workplace is one of the most feedback deprived places in modern world. And that is a 10 year old quote, and we probably are getting better at it. But an annual appraisal or six month appraisal really misses out on most of the nuances of work. So I think having little and often is a better approach and, and we see the world of work moving more agile moving more into weekly fortnightly sprints and i think actually if we're going to do appraisals we should be sort of slightly always on it but then we need to be really light light touch light often i think is better than heavy infrequently well there was a piece of piece of research that i was reading from gallup and basically it could find almost no evidence for a performance improvement doing annual appraisals and in fact, it said, it said mostly that there's a downside and therefore you may as well not do it because at least you'd get the time back. Um, so at least managers wouldn't be spending all that time and employees wouldn't be spending all that time doing it. I suppose there are two things that clients or companies I visit never say. Nobody ever says the management over communicate and nobody ever says my boss praises me too much. So I'm with you on the sort of feedback desert thing. It's very rare. What brought you to this, though? What brought you to measuring employee happiness? Like, what, lo- what, what length of journey are we at the end of when this is your life's work now? Well, it's the beginning of us, act three of my life, probably. Right. <laughs> if you have, everything's a three-act play, isn't it? Act one was studying and university, and I, I did mathematics and then became an applied statistician. I, I wasn't a pure mathematician at all. I was very interested in real problems and and not to say that mathematicians don't solve real problems, but they're in the 14th dimension and no one else cares about them. And I was much more interested in problems that people solve. And so I became a social statistician really in my 20s. But my mother was also a family therapist and I got interested in therapy. And so rather unusually for someone with hard skills and statistics, I started to get very into people skills and understanding people. And over time, this morphed into... Uh, thinking about quality of life. So my first published work says 94 and then into well-being. So, you know, you probably heard the well-being word used quite a lot in business, but in governments, it was started to be used about the year 2000. And I was working in the policy world and I ended up creating indicators of well-being, started working with the Blair and then the Cameron governments on how they could structure indicators of experience of life and well-being. And I kind of just progressed that work uh, a long way. I did a TED talk about Uh, my work in 2010 and then I thought okay act three what am I going to do next (laughs) and you know and and I my dad had been a business guy and so I was always interested in business and I thought well we could apply these things in business and so in 2012-13 I started to really think about 
how could we apply the ideas around happiness and well-being in the business context and measurement was going to be the key to the door in that business is a metric heavy world numbers speak in business so let's create numbers about intangibles so people can talk about them better and with my therapeutic hat on you know thinking that actually you're always trying to bring into awareness that's what you're trying to do when you're a therapist you know you're trying to get the clients to understand the situation better and a system is a client just as much as an individual so how can the whole system become more aware of the internal experience of employees and so using the numbers to open that door but then actually how do we build happier teams happier organizations to follow that through so it sort of became a logical conclusion but yeah well, going back to your work with the Blair and Cameron governments what were you what were you measuring and, and to what end when I started the well-being program at the think tank new economics foundation I started with a question because I think questions are more powerful than answers you know they open space questions and so I start with the question what would policy look like if well-being was its aim it turns out that's quite a profound question because it's difficult to know what lots of policies are about. You know, what are they trying to do? They're trying to promote economic growth, but why are they trying to do that? Or what are they trying to local diversity or this or that? And actually, I believe, although this is still a mainstream idea, though there is still talk about the next spending review will be a well-being focused one, but that basically well-being should be the unifying principle of people's experience of life. And of course, economics matters for that massively. Inequalities matter for that massively. So you can start getting into a lot of policy debates using that term but being much more inclusive so i was advising them particularly on how they structure indicators it can it can be quite simple about it you can be more complicated about it more in depth and so we work with local governments we work with european statistics agencies creating comparable indicators across different countries different languages and we worked campaigning really for the government to do more of this which in 2011 the cameron government committed to measuring well-being nationally and they do now nationally measure well-being what are they measuring? How are they measuring national well-being? So you ask people in surveys structured questions around their experience of life. So in much the same way that people ask about mental health in a sort of uh, context of negative experiences in people's life or negative thought patterns, you talk about happiness and well-being. One is in you can create overall judgments about your life, like how happy are you with your life nowadays is a standard question. You can ask about anxiety loneliness other things as well that draw towards it so they in the national indicator set they have four questions on life satisfaction on happiness on anxiety and on whether you feel your life's worthwhile and meaningful and they're trying to cover a spectrum and i mean i they wouldn't be exactly my choice of four questions but that's what they ended up doing and is that where people sort of say right we're measuring gross domestic happiness was that because they do that in in bhutan was that when people were trying to suggest that that's what cameron was doing so they could poke fun at him well, I mean, it's interesting because it does provoke a uh, comic response among some people, which I think is rather sad. You know, like when Blair started talking about this, they said, oh, Tony wants you to be happy. And, you know, it's sort of like, well, surely, you know, we've got it there in the American Constitution. Surely the happiness of the population is an important aspect. I mean, isn't that how we judge our own lives? And I think it's because people thought that it was prescriptive towards it you know like you're sort of telling you to be happy and it, you know but actually really all that government can do is create conditions for positive experiences to merge out of it or negative experiences and, and why shouldn't they be tracking that and businesses are the same really in the, in the sense it's a context and an environment that people have patterns of relating and behaving with each other out of which arise experiences if you could increase the national happiness of the united kingdom 
is there a tangible benefit? Because I can see how it works in business, but is is it to is it to prove the government's doing a good job, or is it? Well, that, I think that should be one criteria. But I mean, if you really want to think about it, then we know that happier people live longer. So if if the government is interested ah. in the health of the nation, so happier people live, you know, five to ten years longer longer than unhappy people. So that's actually a massive. It's a bigger impact on longevity than body mass index or smoking. If we interested in reducing you know the burden of the unhappy well you know physically uh, mentally unhappy physically well though whether we can make that differentiation particularly on the health service is massive so you know if you actually people became happier there'd be less burden there there'd be more community spirit though people would live better lives you know so that's got to be good and then of course we can look into when we get into business we can look into productivity creativity retention all those sort of things so you know if we look at the uk statistics on productivity which are pretty miserable over the last 20 years then a happier population would actually almost certainly be a more productive one uh-huh. and do you have any sense of happiness and political affiliation or maybe happiness in social media usage or political affiliation is a really interesting one because very broadly, if you're on the right, you tend to be happier than if you're on the left. Uh-huh. And this is when you've held for everything else. You've held for income, you've held for marital status, you've held for other things in your life. And probably that's because the right are more happy with the status quo and the left are less happy. And we include that in our own happiness. So if you sit sort of, you know, to the center, to center left, you're probably more worried about some social things than possibly you are if you're on the right. And so that's where we tend to find the stats go. And whether that's helpful, I don't know, because, you know, there is a slight correlation. It's like we have it with religiosity that people who go follow religion are slightly happier than people that aren't. And that's even holding for community because they are tend to be more better than community. So they have more social relationships. But there is something probably very comforting in believing that there's a God looking after you and that there's some afterlife, you know, and that those of us like me who are agnostic at best and probably atheist if I think about it seriously then you know actually I don't have the comfort of thinking about you know that I'm going to go to a better place because I actually think I'm in the better place right now better make the most of it yeah okay what what else what else makes you happier yeah I was just thinking about yeah the general population because I'm I'm surprised already by the sort of left right split but um... it's a kind of annoying finding for someone of me <laughs> We shouldn't expect the data to all be benign. I mean, you can see, you know, racial tension in the data and things like that. When you look at subjective data like fear of crime and level of crime, then some of that gap is explained about, you know, whether you trust your neighbours. And then that becomes uh-huh. dependent on ethnicity mix and all sorts of things. So, there's, you know, there's bits of it which, you know, actually in the Brexit debate and everything, you, you could probably see if you did a very nuanced well-being indicator, you'd see that coming more. Uh, and I don't mean to put that into a racist concept. I mean to put that in the context of unhappiness in the population, because clearly the vote to leave is a, coming from a deeply unhappy place for a lot of people. And actually that's been disrespected. And that's about rising inequalities as much as anything and falling opportunities. And people have a reason to be angry. And that's absolutely fair from their stance. And it's sort of missed. I think that's where there's a fair critique of the sort of political elite, you know, and also if we think about it, I, that's why I like statistics. You know, look, I'm from an educated middle-class elite. My statistics keep me more real because if you read the statistics carefully, you, it challenges your biases. Yes. And did Cameron stop that work? Or did, was there a change of government and Theresa May decided happiness was no longer on her agenda? So Cameron had 
um, some flagship policies in his first government, you know, about big society, about well-being. And of course, Brexit has just dominated the debate over the last government. But big society got slightly quietly parked. Well-being started to get more into there being well-being officers across sort of PCTs and other implementation programs. There was starting to be some more systematic measurement, but it's slightly waned. It's become more marginal like if you're comparing two policies well-being starts to come into debate rather than a sort of fundamental how do we think about that but it is it's some progress from where we were but i think whenever you work close to the policy arena you, you end up feeling quite frustrated with it i think <laughs> okay so uh so here you are working working in business instead hoping to be less frustrated what's the science behind happiness at work we have a measurement element, which is, it's not trivial, but it, I think it's easily solvable, the measurement thing, which is, we ask people, so, our, no, our strong opinion at Friday is, um, Friday's the name of my business, by the way, on a Friday, we ask people how happy their week was. So the unit of measurement is an individual. The time we ask is over a week because people's experience of work ebbs and flows very quickly. So it should be a very responsive indicator. And we, we ask them their happiness because that's locating it firmly in their own experience. If you ask them, if you ask people, how engaged are you at work? People can't give you an answer. <laughs> they don't know what you mean. It's a does not compute. Yeah, it's a does not compute answer. You know, computer don't know, whatever that expression was. You know, it's like, so clearly engagement is in the organization's agenda. They want people engaged because they want people to be more productive. It's kind of a code word for productivity. But if you ask about people's happiness, it's like, actually, oh, how can we give you a good job? How can we create the condition for you to thrive? That's really what we're trying to do is actually measure people thriving. And happiness is, is very much the best way of asking that question in a, in a week. And then you get a really nice ebb and flow. People have course they're not happy every week that's part of the ebb and flow of life but if teams particularly have two or three bad weeks it's probably something systemic going on there there's not just a bunch of individuals with their head cold there's something going on so there's something to intervene there so so the one insight is about the measurement which is about measuring happiness measuring it regularly consistently so you get we call it happiness kpi that measures the experience across every team in the organization and you know both team leaders should be interested in that and senior leaders should be as well because they see how everyone's faring. And then the other thing is the, is really understanding that human beings, we're very social. We're very socially motivated. You know, the reason that if you want to lose weight, going to Weight Watchers is a great idea is because of the group element of it. You get together mm -hmm. every week, you weigh yourself, you talk about it. If you try and do it on your own, it's always hard. And happiness at work is the same. It wants to be a group goal. And so we very focus on teams as being the sort of vehicle of positive change in organizations. It's very proximal to where people work. And so how do teams have a discussion every week, going back to that performance review, this is not something you save up for once every six months or in a way day every year. It should be 10 minutes every week. How was last week? What's gone well? Any frustrations? And really pick up on that and really agilely move towards creating a better experience for everybody. Do the survey on a Friday, review it on a Monday in the team. Yeah, so basically the data goes two ways. It goes, we collect on the Friday and yeah, we ask how happy were you, ask any successes you want to share, anyone you want to appreciate in the team because, you know, someone else, you want to shout out for someone else, have you got any frustrations? And so the first two are very positive. The third one is obviously a challenge. And then on a Monday morning, the team gets presented back to them what their response rate was, what the happiness score was, the successes that people want to share, which gets everyone to go yay. And it's like, 
as you said, you know, people don't feel appreciated enough at work and actually just being able to share those small wins is good for us. And there's nothing to be ashamed about that. We all want a bit of positive strokes, you know, the, the appreciation works really well because, you know, if I say to you, you know, thanks Dominic for something you did, you feel good because you're thanked. I feel good because I thanked you and everyone else hears about it and they think you're a jolly good fellow too. So it's like it really builds a momentum around it. And then the frustrations are there to be discussed seriously with that positive energy that you've got from bonding a team better. You can meet your frustrations together and it's just incremental changes. Do you then track the frustrations and changes or how are you using the data to help the organization focus on the things that can fix stuff for everybody? That's at the team level. And, and sometimes cultures are very micro cultures in a way that some teams can have in an organization can be functioning really well, some struggling, but then you've got the whole system pattern as well. And so that for that, we talk about um, a sort of learning feedback loop, which is slower. In fact, we rather playfully call these two learning feedbacks, feeling fast and thinking slow. And that is in homage of Kahneman's <laughs> thinking fast, <laughs> thinking slow, but the feeling fast is the weekly team one, but the thinking slow is, is a sort of, HR senior leader learning loop, which is basically analyzing the data that comes up from the weekly team meetings. And it's planning on how to interpret those and act differently. And that's partly about understanding the key drivers of happiness at work, which is a lot of research we've done over the last five years and helping pair the data on that. So we, we tend to supplement that very brief Friday survey or pulse, if you want to check in with a quarterly culture profile we call it which is 15 questions so a bit more like the Gallup Q12 if people are familiar with those where you ask okay. about the sort of drivers of it. Do you get into whether people perceive that the work that they're doing because you could sit down and watch Netflix and it might be enjoyable it might make you happy but you know it's sort of a bit pointless do you get into the whether people feel that the work that they're doing is meaningful or that they buy into the purpose of the organization? Absolutely so we talk about there being five ways to happiness at work. Right. And those five ways cover that space. So the first one is connect, which is that relationships are sort of the cornerstones of happiness and positive experience or, or negative. Uh, they both work both ways. So the next one is be fair, which is about being respected, work-life balance, appreciation. The third one is empower, which is about autonomy. It's about using your strengths, about being able to be yourself. The fourth is challenge. So it's about stretch, creativity, uh, learning and the fifth is inspire which is the meaning worthwhile one so do you are you proud to work at the organization do you feel your work's worthwhile and really that spread which is very if you can make a sort of Maslow's hierarchy out if you want to I don't think these things are hierarchical I think they're network systems you could think of Daniel Pink Daniel Tink talks about autonomy mastery and purpose mm -hmm. those are the last three Americans tend to be a little weak on social you know, they tend to underestimate how socially motivated you are. And that comes the first to a connect. And then social is also about social justice as well and fairness in an organization. So they, they tend to be a bit weak on those. So it's, it's about looking at it systemically. And so are you able, because I think uh, certainly the stat in my head, if I remember it correctly, is 95%, 85% of your perceived engagement of workers as a result of your manager do you tease that out in the team by team scores or do some of those other happiness scores, are they as a result of your sort of team leader, supervisor, manager as well? I hadn't seen such a high stat on that. Uh, what I do know is that experience of work is very proximal. It's very close to you. So in that sense, it's more immediate than it is from, say, senior things. So mm -hmm. possibly if you're looking at a correlation between 
satisfaction with senior leaders, satisfaction with your line manager, and your satisfaction, you might find that this one is eight times stronger than the, the senior leaders. I haven't looked at that stat, but that is an empirical question that you've just posed and one could measure it. I think it's to do with the work you do, it's to do with the work the people you do it with and it's to do with, and that's to do with your manager and to do with the, the organisation. So there are layers to it really. People can be fundamentally unhappy in life and they're not likely to be very happy at work then. And um, it's true, it's, you, know, it's, you, know, you know, people bring their unhappiness and happiness to work and actually they bring their unhappiness from work home or their happiness from work home. These boundaries are, they call them spillover effects from statistically, and you can measure those spillover effects. And, and we find them both ways that, that they both do. So there's something that's about you, but there's, there's an awful lot about how we work together. And I think we all know that we've worked in happy team environments and unhappy ones. And we know fully well that the happy ones are much better. And so when, when you've done this research over the last four years, you, you've compared your data model i guess with other things I, I see a lot of people i meet measuring what they call enps and they're just asking how happy are you at work zero to ten they're taking nps and just applying it to work i kind of hate that measure the enps tends to be would you recommend this place to work you know and so it's very externally focused basically it's about brand ambassadorship mm-hmm. for the for the organization and of course that's helpful for talent attraction and uh, it looks good on Glassdoor, uh, wherever else you're looking at it. So it's not, it's an irrelevant question. It doesn't respond very quickly to immediate situations. So we use, you know, happiness much more. And as I say, we frame it in the weekly. People also do use things like Gallup's Q12, where they're basically trying to measure engagement. But if you'll notice with Gallup's Q12, you know that questions is none of them ask about engagement. They're all asking about drivers of some hidden construct, which is engagement. They can't do any statistical separation between means and ends which as a statistician was always drilled into me you've got to look at your outcome variable you've got to look at your inputs and how do you do the relationship between them so they can't really tell you out of their 12 questions which one is driving engagement more because they're saying engagement is the sum of the 12 questions whereas when we use our 15 questions on those five ways three for each then you know we can tell you precisely which ones are driving the happiness in your organization which ones we find are driving it most in your sector or in the the whole population so i'm quite convinced ours is more robust but i'm you know i'm obviously going to think that otherwise i wouldn't be advocating it and does that because when i've done gallup you, you do think about it as a pyramid and so the first one is is around i know what's expected of me every day and you're saying your model basically says in your business and in your sector you might want to start here. This is where we'd probably see the biggest outcome change for a ver- in- input variable change. We have algorithms that start running through your data that create what we call an impact report. And they're basically using data from our, we've done some big representative samples of the US, the UK, other countries as well, about eight countries, well, actually about 15 over the last five, six years. But we're looking at how sectors perform, but then we've also worked with clients for a long period of time now. So three or four years, we've got data series of every month or every week asking clients questions because we played with the cadence over the years as we came to settle on it being weekly. We played with other cadences like daily, monthly, fortnightly, and we've settled on weekly as being the best way, not just making it up, but looking at how people use it. And why Friday in the week? So the working week, people tend to work in a week sprint particularly white collar office workers. It's a, it's a unit of work. 
and it's an episode is strictly speaking it's called episodal measurement at the yeah. end of an episode you ask how it was so like you go to film how was it so you've done your week's work how was it and so we ask at the end now there are some statistical biases that come in that it's one called peak end which is that you're more framed by what's happened at the end of the week than the beginning of the week and that's true but actually i think that's okay because we work in a week sprint and if you're happy at the end of the sprint that's got to be good if you're unhappy you really haven't got what's done in the week or, or whatever and also then you take that unhappiness home for the weekend so i think what i would argue it has more of a negative impact on uh, negative externality on people's lives mm-hmm. if you go home unhappy on a tuesday night you know you probably talk to your partner go for a walk blah, blah, and then wednesday you can fix it if you take it home friday actually this happened to be just last week actually i got an email i didn't want to receive at 6 30 on a friday and we had a bank holiday and today you know so it takes you a long time to get back to be able to solve that problem you know of course i did a lot of thinking and ruminating about it over the weekend but you know it's actually much more intrusive than if that had happened on a monday because i'd have sorted out the next day so i actually think the week is a good way we've looked at monthly which works okay you definitely forget the first couple of weeks but then if a team has a bad month you don't know whether that was just a bit unlucky and next month they're better but you've got to wait a whole month for that data. Yeah. If a team has a bad week, you can look next week whether they've recovered. And really resilience, people talk about resilience. Resilience is bounce back. And statistically, you can measure that by looking at the shape of the curves, team by team, division by division. So it gives you immediate data, immediate feedback that you can act on as a, as a senior leader if you need to, and as a team leader. And when you look at your clients and their long-term data set, can you take that link between happiness and productivity yeah you can and and retention uh so retention we have very good data on because effectively we've got a list of all the employees and our clients and we know leaves so we can retrospectively look at that so we know for example that if a team we ask on a five point scale and if a team moves half a point up then they have 17 percent lower retention the next quarter lower turnover sorry higher retention basically you leave because you're unhappy and that's quite a it's quite quickly that people will start looking for a job you know if they're not happy and if something comes up they go so you see that very very quickly in the data that unhappy teams have higher staff turnover the productivity for getting organizations one to measure productivity at a team level and two to uh share that with us is more difficult but what we know from our research so we've got some data on performance reviews we've got some data on productivity is our estimate of it is is that happy teams are at least 22% more productive than unhappy teams. That's the figure that I can feel confident of statistically is roughly right. Big impact. How do you then do the cutoff then between happy and unhappy? What's your... So we're looking there at what's called quintile groups, which is looking at the top 20% compared to the bottom 20% okay. of, the, of the teams that we see. So rather than having an absolute definition of what's happy, but in a sense, we do have an absolute definition of what's happy because when we get people to respond to a questionnaire, we ask people, are they very happy? Are they happy? Are they okay? Are they unhappy? Very unhappy. And we color code those greens and yellows and oranges and reds. And so we know that in the green is happy roughly because that's what people are saying they are. So we do have some base there that's just firmly in the data, but it becomes a little bit difficult if you've got a team of 10 and six people are happy and four okay. Is that a happy team? Is it, you know, you, you get a little bit into those things. So you use indexes to get your way around that. But what we definitely know is that the happiest, either the top 20% and the bottom 20% have this very big difference in productivity. Yeah. And, and then the organization gets that data on a team by team basis. And so you've got that early warning around churn because that just staff churn is just 
so hard, expensive, takes a long time, impacts the whole organization if you've got a team that's, that has iChurn. Yeah, it impacts customer satisfaction. If you're a service-based organization, product development, you know, it impacts everything. So I've sort of tried to think sometimes in terms of what's the lifetime value of an employee. People talk about the lifetime value of a customer all the time. Mm. It's obviously related to how long they stay and how productive they are when they're there. And so if you increase happiness, you improve both of those indicators. People stay longer and they're more productive. So you're definitely massively increasing the lifetime value of an employee if you improve happiness. It's probably a squared effect. Yeah, well, I I remember looking at some data from Nationwide Building Society a few years ago, and they looked at the revenue to the building society based on the length of time a financial services person had been in the branch. And their productivity or their revenue per head went up year after year after year after year after year. And so, because then it starts to be looking at where's our churn? Is it is it the older, more productive people who've got big networks or is it earlier on? But if you can fix it, then it just, as you say, it just has that massive exponential effect over time. There's not really any losers about happiness. No, no losers are bad managers. It is exposing to poor management styles, the data. And so people who are threatened by it you know, will be worried about whether they're good manager. Uh-huh. Does your data, other than pointing out the bad managers in the organization, does it, it gives them some things that they can go do? Yeah, totally. So I don't think anyone tries to be a bad manager. No, no, I just, just like you are, you are. Well, we don't try to be bad parents, but some of us, you know, you want to be a good manager. I think people don't have the support or training or they've been promoted for their technical skills rather. So they become accidental managers. So I think there's all sorts of innocence in there too. However, people get frightened of having conversations about people's experience of work. They get worried because things sort of fester, things stay there and they get worse. And they feel like they get, if you don't talk about it, it feels like a Pandora's box situation. You're going to open something up. There's going to be lots of nasties in it. One is, things are rarely as nasty as you think they're going to be. Two is putting light on anything tends to kill most of the bugs because you just illuminate it, you do it. And if you do things little and often, they don't build up. If you express a frustration and it's dealt with, that's a win actually, because people feel heard and you've done something about it. So it's really trying to get the frustrations early. Our grandmothers were right. A stitch in time does save nine. And it's really, it's really a stitch in nine philosophy, you know. And that's what our whole weekly discussions are based on, is talk about things early, catch them early, and build on that. Yeah, I'm definitely a proponent of that sort of daily huddle, weekly meeting, monthly, quarterly cadence. What's your, what's your aim here, that as, either as an individual or as a business? What is it? Is it a million people, a million businesses, raise the gross domestic happiness of the United Kingdom, the world? So my personal aim, so I've been committed to well-being and happiness for the last 20 years, 25 years experience of life. And I, it's a big enough problem that it will keep me occupied for life. And I did decide to switch into work because I, I thought, well, how do you reach adults from policy? You can't reach them because you can reach them through the tax system, which isn't very helpful. Though, to be honest, governments do sometimes try to say, give a tax break for getting married. It's some sort of proposition that marriage is better than non-marriage. And I don't know. So, but that does seem to be a very weak indicator because people pay a lot to get divorced. So I don't believe that a small tax break for getting married is going to do anything. But you really can't reach adults. So, you know, this, through the health service, when people are ill, 
as you get older, there's that younger, it's education. But in the middle, really, people are at work. So if you're actually going to reach the happiness of the population, I think work is the best platform through it. So in that sense, in my grandiose scheme of Nick Marx's impact on the world, you know, I'm like trying to make a happier world work because that makes a happier world. But then for the business, I just got so fascinated with how rubbish I think other people's statistics are. And, <laughs> and I, it really annoys me. And so I just think I'd like to build a, a really successful business, shows people the right way to do it. And obviously part of that is creating the economic engine for business to grow and do that. So I've become more interested in the commercial side, but I'm really a product developer. But I fully understand that for this product to be used, it's got to be sold. So it's like, how do you do that? You know, so I, we don't have key statistics on exactly how many, but I do know when I, that the market size is absolutely huge. There's um, 31 million people at work in the UK. There's another 90 million, 100 million in the US. You know, that's a lot of people. It's a little bit more difficult for us with blue collar workers who don't have email or don't have a smart device that they can contactable for. So we, possibly won't immediately be factory settings you know uh, context for people but if you just look at the service white collar base there's a lot of people there's a lot of people who are blooming miserable at work and i think they would be a lot happier if their teams were more functional and they you know had work they could thrive in absolutely and go home happy on a friday take that spillover effect and don't kick the wife and punch the cat and take the kids to the park yeah, it's, I mean, it is about that. And it's like, you know, and there is a balance there. And I mean, the great thing about this, and I realized pretty soon, is it's a win-win-win. I mean, there's even data showing that organizations with better cultures do better on the stock market. You know, 3 to 8%, depending how you measure it. Probably it's more the low end of the spectrum, actually, because of biases in the way that some researchers have done their work. But it's definitely 3 to 4% extra. I mean, Warren Buffett would be very happy with those type of extra returns, yeah? So, you know... <laughs> The only losers are people who are committed to a sort of managing by fear with huge egos sort of people. And yeah. I don't really want them in the workplace anyway, so I don't mind annoying them. <laughs> Good. Um, Nick, um, if I could ask you for some book recommendations, what along the way have you, have you read that you think other people should read? Well, I've mentioned it a couple of times. I think Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I think he is a really very interesting thinker. Kahneman and um, I think he could be a little bit more emotional in his in his connotations of it but it's very clear interesting thinking about it God, I read quite a lot at the moment so it's hard to know I mean I loved Sapiens if you read Sapiens yeah 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 and Homer Deus afterwards and was a little scarier did you read Homer did you read, did you <laughs> yes. read Homer yes I did I, I like these people who are big thinkers like that if we're looking for a straight book on happiness, and this is for personal happiness, then I would certainly recommend Paul Dolan's new book, which is called Happily Ever After, I think it's called. Okay, because his other book was called Happiness by Design, wasn't it? Yeah, Happiness yeah. by Design. But his second book, I think, is even more interesting. It's not really new research, but it's a really interesting narrative, which is what sort of myths that we peddled in life and how do they stack up against happiness data? So, you know, okay. getting married, you know, working hard, how do these stack up against it? And he basically debunks a lot of the myths of western life and says we should concentrate more on our experience and listen more to our experience and i think that's very worthy very good uh that's my favorite recent happiness book but of course there are, there are classics in there i'm a bit struggling to think of us not just no. because i haven't thought ahead but um no that's cool that's cool that i think that's enough unless you've got another one on the tip of your tongue well i love that book and I, i'm trying to remember its name but i think it's the whole new organization one where they were looking at the different categories of redesign reimagining organizations do you know that book yeah 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 i'm trying to remember the name it's some french guy 
Yes, yes. Frederick Laloux. Very interesting. I didn't like some of the slightly new agey bits of it, but I, I liked the whole context of it. And I guess that's where I sit as someone trying to raise organizational consciousness uh, in that way. Okay. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for those recommendations. As if there's certainly Paul Dolan's new book I haven't read yet, so I'll get, I'll jump on and get that. Um, and if you were to go back in time, knowing what you know now, is there a, is there a point in time where you'd like to go back to? You could have more impact or waste less time or have more fun. I don't know. I've had my challenges in my personal life, like many of us. <laughs> and I think if there's a theme, as a person who I'm a no, I'm a pretty happy chap. I tend to be very smiley. I tend to be very positive. And actually, this is actually against this. It's saying that sometimes I think that happiness you can override signals with your sort of positive outlook. And so I think for other people, it's often the opposite way. But for me personally, I think I. I could have listened a little bit more to some negative signals a bit earlier in my life and acted on them a bit more. And in a sense, that's the stitch in time saving nine philosophy coming back, which is that I think we should take feedback from the universe seriously. And I think probably, you know, if I think in my first marriage, I think, you know, I should have noticed signals earlier. I overrode them thinking it'll be fine tomorrow. And then once you work out, tomorrow's been going on for five or six years it's a bit late you know so i think that's what i would i think that's been my, my advice to my younger self would be just watch out <laughs> <laughs> don't let your inbuilt optimism get ahead of you yeah and I, I think that actually is a it's actually i hadn't expected to be sort of getting towards the end of the podcast on this point but it is a serious point which is that we have to understand that happiness is about optimizing rather than maximizing and that going around smiling all the time you're probably missing things. It's, but it is a, more about you know the happiness of knowing that you can respond to challenges, the happiness that you can, you know, that you you feel capable and you've got efficacy in the world and you you can act in the world. And there's much stronger, more resilient happiness that comes from that, rather than a sort of purely sort of slightly ungrounded one, which I'm sure when I was young I probably annoyed people just sort of. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually what my statistics has been very good for me. It keeps you grounded all the time, and so. That's why I get very interested in them. That's brilliant. Nick, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.